You're listening to Meaningful, a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sofia Bourne, and this season I'm sharing with you eight stories of inspiring young people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives. If you got this far into the season, you can probably guess at least a few of my favorite subjects. One is representation, migration, both forced and voluntary is another one, and the third one is intersection of art and social change work. Today's episode has been a real treat to produce because the story I'm about to tell you combines all three of these things. My guest today is Helen Patuk, an author, illustrator and educator from the United Kingdom. In 2014, Helen founded Kitabna, a non-profit social enterprise that publishes and distributes books for refugee children in Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, Iraqi Kurdistan and across Europe. Helen's story is a marvelous one, but to understand the origins of Kitabna, we have to rewind the clock by no less than a decade. It's 2008 and we're in Bangladesh. My godmother worked as a gynecologist in Bangladesh and um, I went to, when I finished my A-levels, I went to Bangladesh and I taught English there for a bit um, at the at the school, which was a part of the community centre she was working in. And um, it was in the northwest rural Bangladesh. And I found it really, I found it really bizarre that the books the children had to read were, were all very Western, depicting very sort of Western scenes. Um, and I'm talking about picture books now. Um, you know, the families were white, they were driving um, these kind of big cars, there were white picket fences. It was just all very, um, the, the image, I thought the images the children were kind of learning from a very, very young age or being exposed to weren't very representative of their, of their environment. And I just couldn't understand why, for example, you know, they have, they have tigers in, in Bangladesh, they have tigers in mangrove forests and they have these beautiful bright pink sunsets and they cook amazing food and I don't know, I thought it was really it was really sad that these things weren't being represented in the books that children were reading. Why read about, um, the, you know, Little Red Riding Hood with a big bad wolf when you could, you know, there could be a story about tigers um, and these other very, very, like, rich, beautiful details of, of life there. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I sort of wrote and illustrated a, a small story for them um, just about, it just happened in the village and I used their names and, yeah, I tried to depict the scenes, you know, a bit of, a bit of the life there. And, um yeah, they really liked it. And I think they, they've still got it now. I, I got a photo of a couple of years back, still in their library. And um, and then I sort of just forgot about, I didn't forget about it. I went I went traveling and you just do things sometimes in your life and you move on. Um, but then at university, I studied um, post-colonial literature and I was really moved by this phrase Salman Rushdie coined, um, the empire writes back, this idea of people, authors working and writing in the former British colonies as those countries... Um, reached independence, really writing, writing about the kind of the consequences of colonialism and writing, almost like writing out in this extremely powerful, beautiful prose in the English language, using the English language to sort of write about that, um, that oppression and that, and the kind of, yeah, the wake of, of this very destructive period of colonialism. And I think I, I was always very kind of interested in this idea of representation, like, um, and I think that sort of that definitely came into play when I was in Lebanon. Did you always want to be a writer? Probably deep down, yeah. I've always really enjoyed creative writing. I didn't always want to write for children. That was never sort of something I thought I would end up doing. But I've always, I've always really been very, I think I've always found the writing process extremely powerful and empowering. In what way? I think because it just, in a way, it's the ultimate um, expression of connection. Often when you read something, you have this moment. If you remember reading a great novel um, or a great poem or even perhaps he- hearing the lyrics of a song you love, that feeling of um, universal uh, experience, 
feeling like someone who you've never met, who you will never meet, who's perhaps grown up in a completely different culture, a completely different country, has had an experience that you can totally relate to and they've managed to articulate it in a way that touches you and reminds you of something you've experienced. And I think the fact that that can be created with these sort of symbols and these characters that have become languages and have, the, I don't know, can be so beautiful and so, um, so sensual. I think um, for me, learning Arabic was also very important for that. I don't, I don't write in Arabic. I mean, I write, but I don't, I definitely don't write creatively. But I think to sort of almost like rewire your brain into understanding what a language is, essentially, it's a communication tool. But it's also made up of just symbols and connections and kind of all these sort of disparate meanings plotted into a sentence and used to share something. And I think it's also been a form of connecting people across the world for a really long time. People have been discovering about, um, discovering completely different worlds through words within our own world and, and you know, beyond our world since the written word was created. And I really, I think that's for me is the most powerful part of writing, how it can absolutely transport you or you can absolutely transport someone into a different place. You can transport someone into a place of safety, into the kind of the cocoon of a story, into the cocoon of a different world in which perhaps things are different. In the same way that you can, you know, you can write a letter to someone and make them feel very comfortable. Or you can you can make them feel like your love or affection. You can also writing these stories, writing these children's books was also I think at the time for me a way of trying to express a kind of care or love or something, that kind of universal feeling of come into this world where it's a little bit safer, it's a little bit warmer, and read a story about friendship and hope and courage. After Bangladesh, Helen traveled extensively through India, Pakistan, Palestine and Syria, and these experiences heavily factored into her decision to move to Beirut in 2014. Helen enrolled in the language school to learn Arabic and also got involved in a documentary film her friend was making about Syrian refugee children working illegally in Beirut to support their families. It was for this documentary that Helen visited the Bekaa Valley for the first time, a vast, fertile region in eastern Lebanon where hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees live in informal, tented settlements. That was where Kitabna started. We've been invited to the Bekaa Valley to, to see how children lived in the camps um, and to ask some of the parents why they're allowing their children to go and work and to understand a bit what would make that possible, what would make parents send their children to work in a big city alone. I guess the really founding moment was the, when the kids showed me some watermelons they were growing in the camp. And um, yeah, it was incredibly moving like, to see these in this very desolate, very difficult place. Um, but they were very proud of being able to grow. To grow. They were very proud of growing these these two little watermelons um, in this sort of dusty, dusty patch in the middle of the camp. From the Bekaa Valley to get back to Beirut, you have to go over these mountains. It's a really beautiful bus ride. Um, and you'll get jam-packed into these little minibuses and they just like zoom up these mountain roads and take you back into the city. And I remember having this image of, like, a, thinking of these little um, watermelons and imagining if one grew to be really big, so big that the people in that camp could, could climb on top and look back over the mountains into Syria. The Bekaa Valley is separated by two mountain ranges. You have the Anti-Lebanon mountain range, which is um, on the very border with Syria. Um, and then you have this kind of Mount Lebanon mountain range. And the, and the Bekaa Valley is this very fertile, long, long valley in between. And so I just had this image of like this huge watermelon. And then I thought, perhaps like I will, I'll write that story. And I remember I got home to my flat and I asked my Lebanese housemate, um, Antoine, I said, if I wrote a story, would you translate it into Arabic for me? And he was like, yeah, sure. So I wrote this story and I started to paint out some pictures and while, while Antoine was, was translating. 
And eventually, like, yeah, we had a typed up Arabic translation, a typed up English translation, and about 14 watercolors, like A3 watercolors that I'd painted to accompany the text. And at that stage, I was like, shall I, shall I just try and put this into a kind of, some kind of printed format um, and show people and see what they think? So I did that. I scanned the artwork. I formatted the, the English and the Arabic onto pages and just created a very simple prototype. And I took it into my Arabic class and chatted with some of my friends. And a couple of people were like, should we go for a coffee and talk about this? And it's a great project. Why don't you try, like, why don't you make it into an actual project and start, you know, trying it out? And why don't you take this story back to some of these, these children you've met? So the first thing was to go back to um, this camp in the Bekar Valley and to to read the story with the children. So we tried it in a few different locations, also like reading it with children of different age levels and just sort of giving them the book and seeing what happened and observing. That was the first thing, not sort of going and saying, this is a book. This is what you do. Just literally handing them the printed document and seeing what happened. And it was it was that process, that I think, showed me the magic of a book. Because you had sort of like an older sister coming close to her little brother and showing him the pictures and reading him the story. So kind of this kind of role play sort of thing, taking on taking on that kind of storytelling role. And then you had in the camp kids just pouring out of their tents to come and join in this, this storytelling process. And it's actually like something very, very, very Syrian, this idea of telling a story. Not necessarily reading a story like off the page or having kind of illustrated children's books, but this, there's this thing called the Hakawati, and I discovered that when I was in Damascus. So next to the Om, Om Ayad Mosque, you have this cafe, which is very famous for this storyteller who comes in. And it's basically this tiny little man wearing, a, wearing usually wearing a red fez, who comes in and just starts telling a story. And everyone listens, like, you know, sort of very serious, fully grown adults will just stop whatever they're doing and listen, like, you know, delighted children to whatever he's saying. And it's often with lots of expression and it's very much a sort of like drawing people into an active, drawing people into a story and um, activity. And so in the camp, I really saw this kind of, firstly, this kind of focus on this story, this focus on an activity in which everyone could come together and enjoy something totally, yeah, just totally safe and totally um, engaging. And also seeing that the children themselves wanted to be the ones reading the stories. They wanted to be asked to do something, even if just the, you know, the question wasn't even there, just giving them the book, letting them decide for themselves who, for example, who is going to read the story. And also just seeing them really enjoying the pictures. And I remember once like one of the characters in the stories just looked like, it was amazing, he just looked exactly like one of the dads who'd come to kind of see what was going on. And so the kids were really pointing at him and laughing. And that was another kind of important element was this this kind of engagement from the parents as well, seeing their children involved in something and something that they could also be involved with. It was an amazing story from a, a, psychi a psychiatric uh, nurse who was working nearby. She read the book over a few weeks with uh, with, with a kind of a, like a mother's group. And many of these women couldn't read, but her the, sort of her idea was just to read the story with um, with all the mothers and then ask them to take the book and put it in the house and see what happened. And one woman said that she she just put the book down. She didn't do anything. She didn't say anything to anyone. She couldn't read. She just put the book in their tent. And um, her husband, he only gathered the children together for sort of disciplinary beatings and was often out of the house early in the morning to go and work in the fields and came back very late and just didn't really talk to anyone. She said um, one day, one morning, she'd noticed the book had moved. And when he came back that night, he brought the children around together to read the story. And that's when I realised as well, it can kind of, the magic of a book also is, it can give, I think, parents back a role, that kind of dad or mum role of reading, creating like a nice environment for a child through a story. Or... After the initial period of testing and observing how the book was being used by refugee children and their families, Helen decided to do an initial print run of the giant watermelon story and distribute it in the settlement. 
She approached a few publishers, but because her story was targeting refugee communities, the publishers didn't really see a profitable investment in it. So Helen decided to self-publish. She raised enough money for the first print run through donations and ebook sales of the giant watermelon, and then printed the first 1,500 copies of the story in October 2014. I think there were maybe like three or four of us. We just started going out to back to those camps, starting just to share the books with people who we thought might be interested. We also did sort of like reading with the kids to kind of introduce this idea of getting together to read. And, and we then did some follow up. Um, but the follow up came at a time where it was a very cold winter. So the, the winter of 2014 in Lebanon was extremely harsh. There were lots of storms, there was snow. So when we went back and asked, you know, hey, like, where are your books? Do you want to, shall we have a read? Shall we talk about the story? Many of them just didn't have them anymore because they'd been, you know, they'd been, they'd been put on the fire. They'd just become a resource to create warmth, which was really hard because it was sort of, at the one hand, you could totally understand, of course. You know, heat and uh, warmth are, they're a priority over, you know, having something to read. But it was really sad and it it started to, I think, raise questions about, okay, what's a better way to distribute? How can we create or sort of instill the value of, of these books and that they can last, they could last a lifetime or they could last five minutes? You know, this idea that you can keep reading something and keep enjoying it and you can store it and keep it safe. But also just thinking, well, it's also just not going to be a priority for these, for these families. There is a certain irony in the way the universe works, and how it arranges for the big breaks to come when we least expect them. For Helen, the big break came in the form of an entirely serendipitous taxi ride from the airport to her flat in eastern Beirut. At the time, I think they've changed the system now, or they had last year, but at that time, taxi drivers would, always, would often like wait around for, if they, if they had one Ajnabie, like a foreigner, who um, wanted to go to, often like the east part, like. East Beirut, which is where there's quite a large, I guess, international community. They often wait for someone else to come along, charge you both the fee. So they basically like double the fare. Um, and you're just sort of like, oh, you're often really tired after your flight, so you didn't, didn't say anything about it. So I got into this, this taxi to wait, and this, this French girl came along and got into the taxi, and we both sort of just looked at each other like, yeah, it's fine to share a taxi. Um, and um, we got chatting, and yeah, she was like, so what do you do in Beirut? And I was like, well, I'm learning Arabic, but I've also just started this project, and blah, 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 um, told her pretty much just what I told you. And um, she was like, oh, it's really funny because I work for UNHCR. Um, and she worked um, as a resettlement officer. So she was interviewing people. And um, yeah, she was like, this is a great idea. Let me tell some of my colleagues about it. And so, yeah, it was fantastic. The UNHCR uh, approached me and they wanted to buy like a thousand books. Um, so we had to put a price on them. And it was a kind of like, I think then it was like a shift towards, okay, so UNHCR are going to buy a thousand books and they're going to put them in their resettlement offices that are all around the country. And um, it felt at the time like, okay, now we have done this with UNHCR, maybe we should look into sort of the other bigger organizations or what the kind of national NGOs, the international NGOs, and maybe try distributing the book as a resource that has a certain purpose rather than just being a book kids can read and, you know, when they're bored. Helen registered a non-profit social business and named it Kitabna which means our book in Arabic. Within a year, Kitabna developed a methodology to train teachers working with refugee children and youth to use its books as a social and educational resource and established new partnerships with major international organizations, including the Norwegian Refugee Council, the International Rescue Committee, and World Vision International. Today, Kitabna has seven titles in print, three books based on children's experiences in Lebanon, two in Iraqi Kurdistan, one published for refugee children arriving in Europe, and one, an anthology of stories written by refugee teachers living in Zadari and Azraq camps in Jordan. 
The books have been translated into nine different languages and 17,000 copies have been distributed to children in displacement around the world. It's been one hell of a ride for Helen, so I wanted to know what her favorite moments were and what she found particularly challenging on this journey. I don't know, I wouldn't say there's one specific moment. I think it's I think it's, it's always great, for example, to, to, to sort of receive a message or a photo from someone somewhere in the world who's reading the books or using the books. Or, For example, we just got some some M&E results. That's monitoring and evaluation in the language of humanitarian aid. From Zatari Nazareth comes in Jordan about the anthology and how children have found reading it and teachers have found using it as a kind of educational tool. And just to read things like 100% of the children have found that reading the stories has made them feel closer to their friends and family. I think moments like that where you feel like, I don't know, something you've done or been a part of has created that warmth that you kind of set out to achieve a long, long time ago. That kind of mission hasn't been lost. I think that's, I find that, I know it's, that, that makes me happy. And what about the challenges? Um, I think the hardest part sometimes is knowing that you have to kind of let an idea grow organically. You have to kind of give it every opportunity it needs. You have to take those opportunities, even if sometimes there's a part of you that feels so exhausted or so kind of um, like you're fighting an uphill battle. I think sometimes these things have to evolve in the way they go. Like you can't, for example, um, there was a part of me, I think, that was a bit nervous to go to. Yeah, to Iraqi Kurdistan with we were very close to Mosul to know like also I think not only to know that this kind of very what I find very terrifying and monstrous kind of group or movement of people um, to be to be close to that I think that was one very terrifying thing but more terrifying to me was opening the doors to meeting people who'd been who'd experienced this kind of oppression and discrimination and violence sometimes the hardest thing you kind of when you're working with vulnerable people, you have no, you feel like you have no right to sort of feel um, anything other than very lucky that you've never experienced that. You f- I don't know, you feel you have to remain something almost like neutral and poker-faced and but also you, you, you want to be able to show like empathy or understanding and I think it's very, I think it's very hard for a long time to kind of keep up a bit of a, like a sort of um, a resolve in Gaza this summer leaving Gaza and the, and the people I've been working with for a week and just knowing how hard it is for them to leave and knowing how vulnerable they are and how how hard it must be to live with two hours of electricity and kind of seeing it and not just knowing it sort of objectively seeing it and meeting people who, who have to live like that. I think it's popping in and out of people's um, you know deep discomfort is I think at one point you just sort of something in, in you is, is a little bit um, is really torn because then you go back to your sort of normal safe life and you think you're at once glad that you don't have to experience that, but you don't forget those people. You, for sure, you stay in touch with them, but also you just can, you know, it's quite, it becomes a little bit hard to sort of, yeah, to know that in the world there are people out there who are really, yeah, who are just really vulnerable and there's no one, there's very little um, that's being done by whether, you know, whether it's on an international community level or not, there's not enough being done to protect them. And I think for the first time this summer, I really just cried and I haven't, I know it's, perhaps it sounds quite cold, but I don't think I've let for quite a few years, I think I've just, I've let it kind of, I've just had this resolve. And I think this, this summer, I just was really like, how is this, how is, I think, because you have to walk through this sort of slightly concentration camp style path between um, the kind of the Gaza security check and the, and, and the Israeli, the Israeli border. Yeah, I just remember thinking, it's such a bizarre world. It's, a, it's such a cruel world in many ways. Um, so I think I find, I think that's, that's been really hard. And also just, yeah, I think the absolute worst moment for me in this project was in Iraq, finding out that this big project that, I, that this charity had um, proposed and organised, it had all been sponsored by um, the Latter-day Saints. 
and I, I didn't know that they were the, the donor behind the project. And I don't know how comfortable I would have felt about it. But, they, but I thought, that's okay, you know, they're the money behind the project. But then to sort of, I don't know, I found it very hard. They wanted to put their stickers on the books. I mean, if you, if you can imagine, like, all these people are displaced because of religious differences. And I just had this horrible feeling. I had this horrible image of a child being found with, with a book that I had written with a religious sticker on and being treated differently for that or, you know, to the extreme, perhaps even being harmed because of it. And it just was, a, I really asked them not to put the stickers on. And the, the charity were like, well, they want to put the stickers on and they won't support the next stage of the, of the project, which was the actual distribution of these 6,000 books that they'd have printed, um, unless we put the stickers on. And I was saying, but I feel really uncomfortable with this. And how can we, you know, we are, Kitabna is strictly a-religious, a-political. And we don't want any affiliation with, with anything religious, anything political. Um, and I think it's in this region where neutrality is so precious and it's so important, I think, to work effectively. And it's a neutrality that I really respect in certain organizations that are working very much with vulnerable communities that they uphold and it allows them to work really you know, effectively and it allows them to gain the trust um, of all kinds of different people. I think it just really shook me that we were this tiny project who'd in a way been kind of um, become part of something that we perhaps didn't feel comfortable with. For me, it was an extremely hard moment just to feel a little bit like, I don't know, maybe a bit of like a David and Goliath moment, except Goliath wins. Um, and I think it's maybe a little bit the, it's something I really don't appreciate in the development sector, in the, interna in the humanitarian sector. This idea that you have to put your stamp on something, the stamp that says, I paid for this. Yeah, it gave me many, many sleepless nights. And um, it's definitely a moment of professional development for me. What did you learn from this experience? I think I learned um, that you should very carefully word your contracts. You should also establish from the start of any professional relationship uh, where you stand regarding issues of religious or political labels or markers. We certainly do that now. And um, be very wary. I think I learned to be very wary of who is the money behind what you're doing and to feel totally, totally free to ask that question. How do you define success and would you say that you're successful? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure how many people would think of themselves as successful. I think what does success? I think success um, it's very personal to everyone. I feel like uh, a project that I started um, that might be my life's work, I don't know, it might just be a period in my life, was successful. I think I, I think as a creative person, I always I value success as someone having the courage to follow their path, whatever that may be, but also like allowing themselves to maybe step away from the traditional path, from perhaps more traditional ways of doing things and having the courage to follow a dream. So in, in my measurement of success, I guess um, I'm successful. But maybe deep down, I think because of the, I think because it does feel a bit like, if I'm really honest, fighting a rising tide, if we look at the way the world is going, there is an element that doesn't, I don't think would allow me to call myself successful. Satisfied, yes. Um, satisfied that I've, I've taken that path and let Katabna grow. But successful, 
I think if you ask anyone working in emergency education, if they consider themselves or their work successful, I'm not sure if anyone would could ever really say yes, because the very nature of what you're working with is total chaos. And you're basically trying to make the trying to bring hope to like a devastatingly hopeless context. But still, I think that's a really valuable process. And I don't mean, I should probably clarify, I don't mean hopeless as in it's, things are never going to get better. And I do think it's extremely important. But how you measure success, I think, yeah, if all these children you meet, if you could give them the future they deserve and the safety and protection they deserve, if you could do that, I think you'd feel successful. But I think knowing that they are so vulnerable, I'm not sure if writing children's books for them makes me a, a particularly successful person. What would you say makes your life meaningful? Like what gets you up in the morning, keeps you going? I think at the core of it all, it's just a very, very deep appreciation for life in all its joy and pain. I think what gets me up in the morning is a feeling of every day, you can have an impact, like a positive impact. You can be kind to people, you can be, you can be there for someone. Just the idea that you're going to be able to connect every day in some way, whether that's sort of with someone you know you really care about, whether it's with someone you don't even know. I think that's really what motivates me. It's just this promise, and it isn't. It's an absolute promise because every day, in some even in the tiniest way, we we're making connections, and I, I really think that's. I do think that's a little bit what life's all about. I think it's the fertility, that's the common thread between social impact and creativity and artistic expression. It's this idea that sort of you, you nurture something, you know, you let it grow, you give it the space, you give it the time, you give it the, you give it the value. So in the same way that you give value to, for example, that I give value to stories and illustrations and this idea that a story can, can create like a kind of a seeding, it's like a seeding ground for ideas and thoughts and opinions. And if I think of that, and then if I think of social impact and how that starts, it's the same thing. It's like, there is a need. How can it be addressed? How can we get people involved? How much time do we need to give it? I just moved into a new apartment and two things happened. First of all, I, I bought a new writing desk for my apartment and it's just become this place and this space where I just feel so, I feel very safe and I feel very like that's where I do my thing. Um, and then also I planted an avocado stone. So I ate an avocado and I just thought in that childish, I think kind of like childlike way, oh, if I like I had, an, I had a, palm, a plant pot where I was growing some basil and I just thought maybe I should just put this in the soil and see what happens. And then I think two months later, it just sprouts suddenly came up. And I've got this avocado tree, <laughs> avocado tree growing in my house, you know, in, in freezing Switzerland. It's totally bonkers. Um, I don't know how it's growing here. But I think it's this idea of sort of just sort of like, if you're making a painting, if you're writing a story, if you've got an idea, if you really, if you think social impact, I think it all starts with a seed, like this avocado stone. And sometimes you literally do that. To grow something that you just, it needs time, it needs attention, it needs patience. And I think in the same way that if you're writing a story or you're creating, writing a song, making a painting, in the same way, like if you want to see social change, you have to be patient and you have to be attentive, you have to be nurturing, you have to be caring. I think the two things are extremely linked and I think especially in situations where people have lost everything, 
Every uh, humanitarian response should come with an element of how can we get people to get back in touch with that creative part of themselves that can think out of this situation, that can think beyond the hardship. Thank you for listening to Meaningful, and thanks to Helen for such a deep and honest conversation. You can find out more about Kitabna in the show notes on my website at sofiadaswords, that's S-O-F-Y-A daswords.com slash meaningful. And as always, if you like this episode, please make sure to rate and review Meaningful on your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to subscribe to get all the future episodes straight to your device. Until next time! Thank you.